With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Hey everybody, I'm Zale Mednick, and welcome to another episode of Blindspot, the Eye Doctors podcast. When assessing a cataract preoperatively, one of the things we typically look for is whether there are pseudoexfoliative changes on the lens capsule or iris. If pseudoexfoliative material is present, this could reflect a heightened chance of zonular laxity that could cause the surgery to be more challenging. While most of us can recite the general tenets of how to manage these cases in theory, it can be much more challenging when dealing with the situation practically. How can we predict preoperatively whether there will be significant zonulopathy? How might we minimize zonular trauma in such cases of zonulopathy? And what do we do if we're mid-case and the extent of zonular lysis is so much greater than expected that the case becomes outside of our surgical scope? I'm joined today by Dr. Deepak Magur. Dr. Magur has almost 50,000 subscribers on his YouTube channel, which is very popular for excellent surgical ophthalmic videos. He completed his postgraduate in ophthalmology from Minto Eye Hospital, Bangalore, and FRCSC in 1999 from Edinburgh University. He's in private practice since 2000. Presently, he is consultant at Magur Eye Care Center, Bidar, and heads the cataract and glaucoma departments. He specializes in complex cataract surgery and keenly pursues clinical research, academics, and has presented more than 50 scientific research papers in various national and international conferences, and is invited as faculty in many international conferences with more than 100 presentations. He's participated as an instructor in instruction courses in various international meetings, including ASKERS, ESKERS, APAO, and AIOC. He served as scientific committee chairman for Karnataka Ophthalmology Society from 2010 to 2012, and he has publications in national and state peer-reviewed journals. All right, so Dr. Deepak Megur, thank you so much for joining me. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I'm a big fan of your YouTube channel, and it's a delight to have you here. Thank you. It's a pleasure for me to be here on your podcast, and I'm happy to be here and <laughs> answering all your queries. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you. It's, it's totally my pleasure. We're talking about pseudo-exfoliation today, and I actually watched a great video that you had uploaded onto your YouTube channel about pseudo-exfoliation, a case that got quite complicated. In fact, probably more complicated than most of us, including myself, are equipped to deal with, and we'll get to some of those very challenging cases later in the conversation. But I wanted to talk about pseudo-exfoliation because we... All cataract surgeons obviously have cases where there's pseudo-exfoliation, and sometimes it's more predictable than other times how much that's going to affect the case. What are some of the main pearls in terms of predicting preoperatively the extent of zonular compromise? Because I know that 
typically the textbook answer is check if there's zonular lysis beforehand, maybe tap on the table, see if there's phacodenesis. But sometimes that's a little more challenging. What are some of the factors when you're assessing a patient that might let you know this is probably going to be more challenging? Well, obviously, you know, if we have a gross phacodenesis at this lamp examination, then it's very easy to pick up, pick up, and you know you can always prognosticate the case and guard it. But it's not as simple as that always. So usually, the amount of phacodenesis or the lack of it, you think this case is going to be working perfectly fine, but you really come to know only when you touch the capsule for your capsulotomy. That's the real time, and actually, you know how bad the zonules are. So if you can see phacodonosis, well, obviously it's fair and wide. You, know, you can really prepare well. But the challenge is, you know, that alone is not a good enough sign. So many patients who don't have gross phacodonosis, you'll be surprised to find when you touch the capsule, you see all the wrinkling. When you start tearing the capsule, then you know that you're dealing with a very lax zonules. So one other important clue which I rely on is when you look at the sit lamp, the distance between the lens and the iris the shadow which we see, the pupil margin and we see, if the distance is quite big, there's a gap between the lens and the iris, that should, you know, raise an alarm that I might have a surprise when I touch the capsule. That's one thing. Other issues will be, you know, you look at the amount of pseudo exfoliation and it is not predictable, according to me. I haven't got it across. Two things. One is the pupil doesn't dilate well. You don't know the deposition of the pseudo-exfoliation under, under, on the lens capsule, which is beyond the pupil. So you really can't rely on that single factor. So apart from phacodonosis, if I have to rely, I would like to look for the gap between the anterior lens capsule and the pupillary margin. The more the gap is, I would suspect more is the zonular weakness. That is one clinching point. And obviously, the, the most reliable thing is only when you touch the anterior capsule with your forceps or the needle, when you start tearing it, then you know how bad or how good the zonules are. I think that's very validating for me to hear because a lot of people will say phacodenesis and I'll think to myself, well, it is real. I'm not seeing much, I don't think, and maybe I'll try to convince myself. But to hear somebody like you acknowledge that that isn't so easy to pick up and that obviously if you have it, great. Well, well not great for the patient, but great in terms of letting you know in advance, but it's not so common. And that's very interesting. So the gap between the iris and in the anterior lens capsule is the idea that if the gap is bigger, that indicates that the zonules might be a little bit more mobile and that the lens isn't sitting in the position that you would normally expect it to? Yeah. So it's an indirect evidence of a lax zonule. It's an indirect evidence of a lax zonule. It doesn't tell you the extent of zonular weakness, but it is, you know, something like a red flag. Okay, be careful. So be prepared with everything now in this patient. You mentioned that the amount of pseudo-exfoliative material isn't necessarily predictive. What about the location of the pseudo-exfoliative material? If you just see it on the iris margin, but you don't actually see it on the lens capsule, are you a little bit more comforted in that case or not necessarily? Uh, no, no, I don't think it is. Of, according to me, it doesn't carry much significance. The reason being, you know, because the pupil doesn't dilate so well in most of these situations, because it would exfoliate itself. If the pupil is dilating very well and then we're able to see the, the location of the uh, pseudo exfoliation, maybe we can correlate with that point. But in my experience, usually these complex cases, the pupil won't dilate beyond five millimeter. 
So the actual the deposition of the pseudo exfoliation happens in the mid peripheral region. So that's where you're going to see it. So I don't really rate this sign of the location of the pseudo exfoliation on the anterior capsule quite high in deciding the intraoperative zonular laxity or not. And you mentioned this before, but I just want to make sure I'm clear on it. In terms of the dilation of the pupil, granted, if it doesn't dilate well, it makes it tougher to assess if there's pseudo-exfoliated material. But in and of itself, is the sign of a poorly dilating pupil, is that predictive that it's going to be challenging in regards to the zonules or just more challenging because the pupil itself isn't dilating? No, uh, no, yeah, I agree with you. But the thing is, again, just a poorly dilating pupil doesn't necessarily mean that the zonules are weak okay so many times we have poorly dilating pupil the zonules are very fine absolutely fine no problem at all so again you know just a pupil doesn't dilate well you shouldn't take it that the zonules are going to be weak in that so i don't think there is any direct correlation with that the last question before we move on to the surgery is when you look at the age of the patient does that make you a little bit more concerned that the they've had more time for the pseudo-exfoliation to cause zonulopathy? Absolutely. You know, any the patient, as he gets elderly, the zonules are going to get slackened. They're going to get weaker. Add on to it, you have pseudo-exfoliation. Okay? So a pseudo-exfoliation patient, when the patient is maybe in the 60s compared to that in the 80s, I would be definitely much more worried when I'm dealing with a patient, an 80-year-old patient with pseudo exfoliation than in a 60-year-old. So there are two things. Naturally, the zonules are going to be weaker in an 80-year-old compared to a 60-year-old person. And secondly, the, you got given more time for the pseudo exfoliation to deposit and weaken the zonular apparatus. So definitely elderly patient with pseudo exfoliation, our concern is significantly much more higher as far as the zonular health is concerned. Excellent. That was all very clear, and that has already helped me before we even get to the surgery. But as you said, surgery, when you start operating, is really when you're going to know the state of those zonules, when you make that incision into the capsulorexis. So what are your steps when you make that incision, or when you incise the capsule and you see that it's wrinkling? What are some of the things that you might do in the case to change the way you're approaching it? Yeah. So I think before even I puncture the capsule, whenever I see that this case can be tricky intraoperatively, and if the pupil is even mid-dilated, it's not dilating very well, even if it is say about four millimeter or five millimeter, then I would not hesitate to insert an pupil expansion device. So that's the first thing which I'm going to do before even touching the capsule. Because in the event that if I go in, then realize that the capsule is floppy, then it becomes a little bit very difficult for me to again deal with the pupil. So get the pupil out of your way. Even in a marginally dilating pupil, I would like to put in a, a pupil expansion device and just get the pupil out of the thought process. And is there a preferred device that you like to use, a Malugan ring or iris hooks? Yeah, in this situation, I would still want to go ahead and use pupil-based expansion devices like a Malugin ring or a B-hex device in our country, which is popular. We okay. call the B-hex device. There's something which is also pupil-based expansion device. Okay. So I usually don't use iris hooks in these situations. I just go ahead and use the pupil-based, either a Malugin ring or the B-hex device, which is much more popular in my country. It's again a pupil-based. You don't have to make those four extra or five incisions to place the iris hooks. 
However, if I am suspecting gross zonular weakness and I noted the capsular, you know, I noted the phacodonosis preoperatively, those are situations where I would go in with my capsule hook itself, even to dilate the pupil, mm. to exit the pupil. Because in the event, I find that the, the, the capsule is really bad. I can use the same hook to hold on to the capsular margins. If I'm suspecting very severe zonular weakness, then I'll go in with the capsule hook itself. That way you can then easily convert that to yeah, making it, it a capsule both of them. You can use the capsule hook for stabilizing the iris. And in the situation you feel the capsule is too bad, then you just renegotiate the same hooks to engage the capsule. That is one thing which I do differently. Perfect. And then once you puncture the enter capsule, and if you find that the flap, it is difficult to raise the flap and tear it, then usually it happens. Usually it happens. The reason being, you always require a counter-traction from the zonules for your rexus capsule to tear easily. Whenever there is a lack of this counter-traction because of the zonular weakness, the capsular tear is not very easy. The first thing, you always have to use a forceps and always keep the eye a little bit more pressurized than what you would normally do. So in that case, you go back and inject your OVD once again and then hold it with your forceps and then do it. So many people would want to do a rexus in, with a cystitome, who are used to doing with a cystitome. But these are the situations like you know eyes with zonular health which is being compromised. These are the cases where forceps would be definitely much more better. And always hold it, re-grasp it, and always try to keep it pressurized with OBD. Is it okay in that situation to make the initial nick, the initial cut with the cystitome, and then move on to the forceps? Or are you saying don't even use them at all? No, no. Actually, you know, the thing is, because the zonular laxity is so high, you sometimes find it difficult to perforate with your forceps as well. Okay? So as I told you, even to perforate, you require some counter-traction by the zonules. So you go in with your forceps, try to perforate as you normally would do. So the moment you touch the capsule, you see the radiating folds emanating from the puncture site, which say that, you know, the anterior, lens, the anterior zonules are weak. Then you try to puncture it. If it doesn't puncture, come out, use a cystitome, which is much more sharper, and then go in and perforate it. Raise a flap, and then go resort with your resort to your forceps, grasp it, and then do a rexus. Okay, so you're primarily saying, though, when you're talking about don't use the cystitome, you're talking about people who use the cystitome to do the whole capsule or rexus yeah, and not yeah. converting to forceps. Absolutely. Okay. Now, let's say the capsule or rexus... <laughs> starts tearing out and you're in more of an issue than you thought it was. And when you're trying to get the rexus back, one of the maneuvers that, that is popular is the little maneuver where you pull in the opposite direction that you would expect. In the situation of zonular weakness, is the little maneuver dangerous to the zonules or would you still recommend using the little maneuver? I would still recommend to using the manure because we don't know, we can't quantify the amount of zonal weakness in that particular case scenario. But we're so desperate to get the rexus in, it doesn't matter, you know, even if you find it, you can just go and give it a try. And invariably it works, invariably it works. Of course, we might lose a little bit more zonules in that area, but you can always have the opportunity to stabilize it with your CTR. But still go ahead and try it out. 
I mean, that's that to me is the most scary part of of the surgery when I'm doing one with pseudo exfoliation because I'm worried that the rexus will run out. But those those are valuable tips in terms of hydro dissection. Any particular points to make there other than gentle hydro dissection? I imagine hydro dissection is probably the most important critical step in this surgery after your rexus because in all these eyes, you know, because the zonules are weak. The hydrodissection fluid wave also does not pass through very easily. Again, for hydrodissection, you need to have the counter-traction for the zonules for the fluid wave to pass across unhindered, across the beyond the equator and under the posterior capsule. So injecting multiple times small quantity of fluid is extremely essential, I should say. The reason being, we cannot proceed with the surgery until and unless we're certain that your central lens mass is totally free from its attachments to the lens capsule. So in these eyes, because the zonules are weak, because the hydrodissection will not be perfect, and most of the zonular tear or worsening of the zonal laxity happens because of an incomplete hydrodissection, and there's still some adhesions, and you directly go in with FACO and try to rotate the nucleus. So never ever go in starting with your FACO until and unless you're confirmed that all the corticocapsular adhesions, which are between the central lens and the um, capsule are truly broken. So just confirm it by again, pressurizing the eye with OVD, use your chopper or a Sinskuke to go and dip on the lens and try to gently nudge the nucleus around and see whether it rotates freely. So once you're certain that it is rotating freely, then only you can go to your nucleus management. Until then, if it doesn't rotate, come back, go ahead and repeat hydrodissection. The beauty of hydrodissection is always you can go ahead and repeat it. The idea here is what I want to stress is ensure that your the corticocapsular adhesions are totally taken care of before you go into the nucleus management because the maximum amount of stress on the zonules happens during nucleus management. And if your hydrodissection is not good in taking care of all the attachments between the lens capsule and the central lens matter, then the zonular stress is going to be a continuing process until you deal with the nucleus. So hydrodissection is probably the most important step after your rexus. What I'm hearing, I think, is that because you don't have that counter-traction, you might not see that clear fluid wave that you like to see, but that's okay. The goal isn't necessarily to get that fluid wave. The goal in this case is just continue going in all clock hours or as many as you can just to separate it because that fluid, even if you don't see the wave, will still be separating the cortex from the rest of the cataract, which will make your life easier. Yeah, you, I would say, you know, test it mechanically, whether your hydrodissection is working there or not. Even if you see a fluid wave, it might not have passed across the opposite equator still. Okay, so just use an instrument, whether you're seen in fluid wave or not, just use the second instrument, try to tap on the nucleus, gently rotate the nucleus and see whether it is moving easily or not. Because invariably what happens when you try to move the nucleus, you can see the whole bag moving actually. So if, the, if you see that along with the nucleus, the bag is moving, stop. Your hydrodissection is still not effective. Go back, re-inject OVD, again, redo uh, hydrodissection from some other quadrant, very little amount, and again, decompress it from the other quadrant, and then try to rotate the nucleus and see. So when the nucleus is being rotated, 
you should see that the rexis is not rotating along with it so that is a, that is the end point of your successful hydrodissection not seeing a fluid wave do you ever use hydrodelineation in these cases you can use if the nucleus is softer i would then go ahead and use hydrodelineation if the nucleus is denser then i wouldn't i would definitely just just do a hydrodissection itself so if we move on to nuclear disassembly what are some of your pearls for that is there a thought that chopping or sculpting is more traumatic to the zonules i would not think so whatever is comfortable for the surgeon that should be fine there's a common misconception or misperception and i should say that you know the chopping does not cause stress whereas sculpting does cause stress on the zonules no if you are using the right amount of energy for doing the sculpting without pushing or shoving at the nucleus it should be fine no problem at all so the amount of energy which you are using should be able to just shave or melt the nucleus by doing that we're not inducing any stress in the zonules on the counterpart if you if you're technically not so adept and your skills are not good enough to do a chop even chopping itself can increase the stress so it ultimately depends upon how clear are you with your concepts and whether you're using the right strategy for the right technique which you've chosen so if you're doing a chop no problem go ahead and do a chop either horizontal or vertical only thing you should be technically good or skilled enough to deal with that and sculpting can also be done very easily common misconception is that sculpting enhances the zonular weakness nothing you should just use the right amount of power just don't shoo or push at the nucleus should be fine in terms of let's say that you did your capsular rexus you got it but you you were able to do it but it was challenging and you noticed that there was a fair amount of capsular weakness is there any situation where you would say okay i'm i'm lucky i got the capsular rexus done maybe i'll now prolapse the lens gently into the anterior chamber because i i just don't want to work within this capsule anymore because i'm worried about what's going to happen or is that a bad idea again it depends upon the individual surgeon skill sets which is having at that usually i a surgeon who has done a decent amount of phaco emulsification with a maybe moderate level of experience as well it shouldn't be a problem to go and work in with the bag itself as long as you know how to do a classical four quadrant divide and conquer technique or a stop and chop technique it should be fine it should not be issue the only thing if the thing is if the cataract is very soft okay the cataract is very soft maybe that is an ideal situation where you just hydro dissect and prolapse the nucleus out and then you can eat in the in the anterior chamber that is one situation where probably technically is much more easier to do that that is only situation where i would recommend otherwise most of situations i think in the back phaco emulsification would do the job for you At what point during the surgery would you first be comfortable putting a capsular tension ring inside the eye? I've heard multiple different answers to that. On the one hand, if you put it in before the cortex, then it can make it more challenging to get the cortex out. When is the earliest you would consider putting a capsular tension ring inside the eye? It be, it depends on case to case situation. Assuming that the zonules are pretty weak, and when do i suspect the zonules are pretty weak once i do hydrodissection once i do the hydrodissection and try to move the nucleus and i see that the bag is moving along with the nucleus when i see the bag is moving along the nucleus 
then this is a situation where I would like to introduce the CTR early enough before even touching the nucleus. So let me get this very clear. If you in interoperatively, if your assessment suggests that the zonular weakness is quite significant, and what is the step in which it's going to worsen? It's going to worsen significantly more when you're trying to manage the nucleus. So you want to stabilize the bag before you manage the nucleus. You should identify what amount of zonular stress is okay to proceed. So one clue which I see is when I do hydrodissection, if the nucleus is rotating and the bag is also trying to move along with the nucleus, then it's an ominous sign. I say, hey, stop here, okay? This is time I want to stabilize the bag first. So I would want go ahead and insert my CTR now itself, not to wait until I emulsify the nucleus. So the common misconception or notion that, you know, try to delay the insertion of CTR as much as you can does not hold good always. The reason being, the maximum amount of zonal stress happens during nucleus management. And the already compromised zonules can take, take a brunt when you're trying to manage the nucleus with forceful division and all those things. So why don't stabilize it earlier? The only fear is about cortex. Cortex aspiration becomes a little bit difficult. Well, believe me, if it's not such a difficult thing, if you can able to you know, save the bag. If you delay the insertion of CTR, you might not have the bag itself to remove the cortex. So what's the point in delaying then? <laughs> so the only thing is you have to have the right judgment. What is good for me to proceed? And what is not good for me to proceed, stop here, insert the CTR. Okay. So one trick to insert the CTR, sometimes it becomes challenging to a novice surgeon to insert a CTR. What, because the bag is filled with cortex, the bag is filled with the nucleus, especially when you have a bulky nucleus, uh, trying to thread in a CTR inside can be daunting for a novice surgeon. Well, there are a few tricks for that. First, go ahead and aspirate the cortex in the quadrant which you're trying to put in the negotiate the CTR inside. Then create some space using helon under the capsule. Okay, just inject a little bit of helon under the capsule. You create some space. Then you can nicely thread in your CTR into it effortlessly. It goes in, no problem. Then manage. So once the bag is had an equatorial 360 degree support, there is a lot of you know you can surety for you to proceed with the nucleus management. It's much more safer. Go ahead and do the nucleus management. By finally, when you come for cortex aspiration, it's not such a big deal at all, okay? So just you to hold the cortex and then you do some small tangential movements and gradually strip it off. It can strip it off. It'll take double the time what would you take for a healthy capsular bag, but still it works very fine. Many a times, you know, because the ring is there, you can manage the cortex efficiently without disturbing the bag. Now, many times what I've seen is uh, in these pseudo-exfoliation eyes, the capsule will be adherent to the cortex very much. Okay, as I told you, because there is a lack of zonular tensile contraction, hydrodissection would not be very effective. So in a situation where hydrodissection is not effective, somehow you manage the nucleus out. Now you have come to cortex aspiration. The moment you try to aspirate the cortex, the bag will be coming along with it. Okay, and if you have a CTR already in that point, the CTR will prevent the bag from collapsing and coming to the aspiration port. So just find a way to catch hold of the anterior leaflet, use tangential movement, 
and then commit out. If it's not there, go ahead and inject fluid a little bit more, loosen the cortex attachment from the capsular bag, and you're good to go. So it is not such a scary task to you know aspirate the cortex with the ring inside Eisman. It's not. It's not actually. It's not. So find your ways out. It's it's not so difficult. You answered a lot of the questions I had there and gave some really great advice. One thing for me, the reason that I have been hesitant to put a capsular tension ring in before the nucleus disassembly is exactly what you said, because I'm a little bit concerned, well, where exactly am I going to put it? How am I going to get the space to get that where I want it to? But I like what you said there about maybe aspirating a little bit of the cortical material that's blocking it, putting some viscoelastic in that area to create more of a space, and then injecting it so that you're able to get it in. Because I think, for me, that's why I'm more hesitant to put it in until I've got the nucleus out. But you make a very good point. At that point, you're putting the capsular tension ring in after you've already been creating more damage to those zonules and the usefulness of it while there still is some is not as heightened as it could have been. In terms of capsular tension segments, I don't want to get into them in much detail because it's a it's a more challenging skill that a lot of us a lot of us don't use. But obviously there is a role for capsular tension segments, especially for complex anterior segment surgeries. Is there ever a time where the pseudoexfoliation was extreme and the zonular lysis was extreme and the lens started tilting backwards. How bad is it once the capsule's been incised? Obviously you want to finish the surgery, but to say, you know what, I'm just going to stitch this up. I'm going to close the eye and send it off to somebody. Is that ever an okay thing to do if you realize that this is going to need a capsule retention segment and it's out of my skill set? Or is it just not advisable once you've already started and opened that capsule to delay? No, it's absolutely fine to just pack it off and get help. It's absolutely fine. So we need to remember that patients' interests are the foremost priority. If we have found ourselves in a sticky situation where we feel that we are unable to proceed further, and in fact, by proceeding further ourselves, we can damage more harm than any good, then I think it is just advisable to just close it and be very honest. You know, I just couldn't complete the surgery. You need to have some specialist to operate on you and it can do the job for you. Irrespective, I'm not a capsule tension segment, any other complication also. Many situations will be there where we find ourselves in an awkward situation, which is beyond our skill set at that particular time. Never hesitate, okay? So if you can get help at the same situation, same time frame, if your colleagues are around you, fine. If you're not there, if you're alone, still doesn't matter. Just close it. Ensure that the best care is given to the patient as early as possible. Imagine if you if you still want to go ahead and do it. Suppose you may lose the nucleus into the bag, or in the process you can damage the colon endothelium to such an extent that you know you may end up having the patient requiring an endothelial keratoplasty. Those are much more worse situations than just just closing it rightly and getting it done by a more uh, experienced surgeon. Those things should be very clear in our head. Okay, so there, there's no confusion. So if it's beyond it, just close it. Be honest to the patient. We'll get it done right to you. So well, I, whatever happens, whenever when you're when you're stuck in a sticky situation, an inexperienced surgeon, the cloudy mind is like a devil's workshop. <laughs> they don't know what's going on, and you take all the wrong steps there. Okay, so a situation which could be managed with a much more simpler procedure might end up having a drop nucleus 
which you require in vitrectomy and or it may end up having a corneal edema which is persistent which may end up having a endothelial keratoplasty rather than all these things just delay the surgery for a day or two get it done by an experienced surgeon whatever the complication be it would be ma managed much more better so these things of decision making has to be done preoperatively any inexperienced surgeon they should know what what should i be doing if the things go out of hand because you know our efficiency dramatically decreases when we are in a crisis situation okay so if a person is able to say do say if 70 is his ability is ability in his ability in his normal circumstances in crisis situations his efficiency comes down from 70 to 35 so already his skill sets are poor by that and the mind is not thinking right way so you, more chances of messing up are higher than doing any good so if your mind is clear okay i am anyway my skill set is 70 which is dropped down to 35 because now i am in a crisis situation in when the skill set has dropped down to 35 i wouldn't want to venture anything more dramatic or i have never tried before if your confidence level is not so high at least have the clarity of thought okay let me close and let me my friend do this for me that clarity of thought has to be taught to our younger colleagues well, very wise advice, and I, uh, I'll send you some patients. I'll tell them to fly over to you a few times <laughs> and get your help <laughs> if necessary. But in seriousness, that, that, is, that is very, very wise and important advice, not just for surgical things, but for clinical things as well. The last question I had for you, I had a guest on recently, Dr. Eric Donenfeld, and we were talking about femto cataracts, and he said one of the situations in which he advocates for femto strongly is in pseudoexfoliation, and I was wondering if you share that thought. Absolutely. I think any sort of zonular weakness, subluxated cataracts, or generalized zonular weakness, what we see in pseudoexfoliation, the, the only advantage of those is you get a better rexis, with the femto compared to this is much more predictable you can center it well where you want it you can size it appropriately so i think apart from all the things the only reason why femto should be there is for these eyes with big zones otherwise nothing else you know more of the things that can be done by us <laughs> if at all there's only one indication which i could recommend a femto it would be for the rexus in eyes with subluxated cataracts or pseudoexfoliation well you've provided so many good tips here just in terms of the preoperative assessment, looking at the distance between the iris and the anterior lens capsule, a liberal use of iris expansion devices, careful hydrodissection with multiple small injections of fluid to make sure that 360, there's good separation of the nucleus from the cortex, and early use of the capsular tension ring, and so much more that you, you said there. Do you have any final thoughts for people in regards to these cases? Yeah, I think, you know, whenever I see a pseudo-exfoliation patient, I just tell him that, you know, our relationship is going to be for life now because <laughs> these pseudo-exfoliation patients, they have, they might develop glaucoma, which is more likely. The lenses can get decentered, which is more likely. So either way, you need to see me for your life, either until I am alive or until you are alive. <laughs> so that's what I see. So pseudo-exfoliation is a challenge for the surgeons both for medically as well as surgically, and it's a problem for the patients. That's it. 
Well, Dr. Deepak Nagur, thank you so much. You're so down to earth and it's been so delightful speaking with you. Tons of great pearls there. I hope that people check out your YouTube channel. You can just type in Dr. Nagur's name on YouTube and you'll find tons of very useful videos. And as I said earlier, he's got almost 50,000 subscribers, so he's doing something very right. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of Blindspot. Have a great day. 